Welcome to the Lancet Digital Health Podcast. I am Rupa Sarkar, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. We are going to be talking today about a new study published in the Lancet Digital Health this month that describes an open access deep learning algorithm to quantify and distinguish between brain lesion types in patients with traumatic brain injury. I'm joined by lead authors, Dr. Virginia Newcomb, a Clinician Scientist Fellow at the University of Cambridge, and Miguel Montero, a Computer Science Researcher and PhD student at Imperial College London. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. To begin with, can we first start with what your inspiration for this study was and how it fits in the context of previous work? So we're interested in looking at traumatic brain injury, which is a huge public health issue around the world. It actually is estimated to affect up to 60 million people every year. And this causes a substantial burden of morbidity in those who survive. But even in those under the age of 40, it's actually the leading cause of death. So after someone has a traumatic brain injury, The imaging modality of choice is usually uh, CT or computed tomography. And this allows us as clinicians to answer some very key questions when we look at the scans. So does a patient have any lesions secondary to their brain injury? If they do have these lesions, do they need a neurosurgeon to perform an operation to remove blood or to fix any fractures? And does the patient need to have monitoring if they're at risk of having swelling or other intensive care management of their injury? And lastly, a CT allows us very crudely to help determine some aspects of prognosis. However, what we normally use CT for is really qualitative. So is a lesion there or not there? And some very crude quantitative metrics And so it doesn't really take advantage of all of the things that we can see on the scan. And so we were were keen to try and take advantage of this rich detail when we were assessing our patients in our research studies. But to do that manually is extremely laborious. A patient after a head injury, if they've got lots of lesions, can actually take many hours for someone to hand annotate all of those lesions. And so we really wanted to develop a tool that would allow us to automatically segment them um, so that we could apply this tool to large data sets for research and also explore its use in clinical practice. So previous tools that have attempted this have focused on mainly on the detection of blood, but not actually tried to differentiate what blood is there after the injury. But after a head injury, there are many different types of of lesions that you can have. So you can have blood on the surface of the brain, such as an extradural hematoma, under the lining of the brain, such as as a subdural hematoma or subarachnoid blood, and also within the parenchyma itself, so intracerebral hemorrhages. And we know that all of these different types of lesions will impact differently on the patients, both clinically in terms of progression of lesions and in terms of prognosis. And so it was really important to us to develop a tool that could separate the different lesion classes. We also wanted to do what hasn't been done before, which was to try and quantify the amount of brain edema that is there. So we often see this surrounding lesions, such as contusions, but also more generally in the brain. And knowing where it is and knowing how it progresses can affect the management of these patients and their outcome. And so we were very keen that our tool would be able to address these these issues. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that summary. 
So you touched on quantifying injury using this AI model, but how can this AI model really advance brain injury research and help patients with uh, traumatic brain injury? So I think for us, we sort of look at that as, as three different ways that we might potentially use this tool in the future for these patients. So the first, as you've already mentioned, is really to allow us to analyse large data sets of patients in a way that we've never been able to analyse before. And so it will help us understand how both the lesion type, the lesion location, as well as the burden by how large that lesion is impacts upon outcome. It will also allow us to look carefully at how and why these lesions progress and what are the clinical correlates of this. And so having better knowledge in this way will allow us to optimise what we do for these patients and hopefully in the future actually offer more personalised treatment strategies. As well as uh, all of this prognosis work, we do know that when a radiologist looks at a scan that there is substantial intercenter variability and discordance between radiologists' reports. Um, and this is part of the fact that it's very qualitative. Is there a lesion there or not there? And so using an automatic tool such as this may help improve this intra-observer variability. And so again, allow the radiological reporting to be used in large-scale imaging data sets and research um, of these patients. And thirdly, and perhaps this is, is in some ways the most important point that we could use this for, is that as long as there was further assessment and careful implementation of these tools, then it may help us to report the scans of these patients. And this might be of particular benefit in low-income and middle-income countries where radiological expertise is likely to be less easily available. So just going on to the methods in the paper describes using a convolution neural network model to predict lesion volume. Can you talk about the rationale for using this particular AI model? So as Virginia said, in the case of TBI, it's not only the, the presence and type of lesion that is important, but also uh, its volume, since it has been shown that lesion size may be important for long-term prognostication and have implications on also the, um, the potential growth of the lesion. So recently, convolution neural networks have emerged as the segmentation algorithm of choice, and they significantly outperform uh, their predecessors. However, they require very large amounts of data to train. And for this reason, the center TBI data was, was the perfect opportunity for us to try to conduct this study. Now, I must note that when we do segmentation, we don't directly predict the lesion volume, but we predict for each pixel or voxel, if we talk in 3D, we predict whether that pixel is part of a lesion and what kind of lesion. And then we pull these uh, results together to compute a volume. So usually in medical imaging analysis, we wouldn't, from the computer science perspective, we wouldn't look at volumes. We would look at dice scores. However, during this process, we, we quickly realized these scores were not giving us the full picture of the capability of, of our algorithm. And this is why we decided to look at more clinical, meaningful metrics, uh, such as volumes. That's very interesting. So you mentioned using the center TBI data. What is it about this data set that made it particularly useful for your study? And are there other data sets that can be used to help validate uh, AI models such as this? Well, the first thing that makes it useful is, is its size, right? Because to train large machine learning models, you need a lot of data. 
And the second thing is it's because it's representative of the pathology. It's not a chosen data set. It's, it, there's no sampling bias. Everyone mm -hmm. that ha is in the data set has had TBI and there's no choosing of the lesion sizes or anything like that. So we know that our results on this data set are going to be representative of the pathology in the real clinical setting. Sorry, Virginia, were you about to add? I was, I was just going to add to that because I, I think Miguel makes a very good point that it's one of the largest data sets available for these types of patients. One of its richness is that it encompasses the entire severity spectrum of traumatic brain injury. So it goes from patients who have a very mild head injury and may go into an emergency department, have a CT scan and then be sent home, through to those with the most severe injuries who'll end up in intensive care units and may end up dying. So it really has a, the broadest and encompasses all of the possible types of lesions that these patients may have. Can you break down the results shown in the figures of the paper and explain clearly what the new findings are? So what we found is that we were able to achieve good segmentation performance for uh, lesions with a volume greater than 5 ml, but not so much for uh, smaller lesions. And when I talk about segmentation performance here, I'm talking about dice scores, which is the agreed upon metric we use in computer science. Uh, however, what we found by visual inspection is even though the dice scores uh, for the smaller lesions were not great, we were quite happy with, with the visual agreement we, we observed in the, in the results. So we concluded that maybe the dice scores were not the best metric to measure the performance of, of the algorithm as a whole. With this in mind, we, we tried looking at the results uh, from a different perspective, such as uh, the lesion volume estimates we've already mentioned, and also detection. And to give you um, an example from our paper, when we looked at the dice scores for intraventricular hemorrhages over the whole data set, we obtained a median dice of zero. And even when we exclude the cases with no intraventricular hemorrhages, the dice is only 30%. However, on the exact same data with the exact same algorithm, when we look at it from the detection perspective, we obtain an AUC of 0.89 for interventricular hemorrhage. And on a completely external data set, the same algorithm performs with a 0.95 AUC. So something that on the surface seemed like it wasn't working, it was uh, working just from a different uh, perspective. And this is... This is partially because DICE is very uh, sensitive to small or inexistent lesions. And so in TBI, where you have lesions of multiple types and multiple sizes, it's really important to try to look at the results from multiple angles. You mentioned AUCs reaching you know, the 90s in your answer. And what does this mean in clinical terms? Okay, so maybe Virginia can add to this. But for me, it means that even though uh, we might not be able to perfectly delineate very small lesions, we are at the point that we are able to detect them with quite good accuracy. And so maybe a combination of detection and segmentation would be the best thing to try to incorporate in a clinical tool. What we've uh, shown is that it's very good at the detection of lesions and is actually probably in reality up there with what a radiologist would be, though we haven't formally tested that, and that was something that would require formal testing if we were going to bring this into the clinical realm. 
in terms of volumes, there may be some discrepancy between what a annotator does and what the algorithm finds, but it seems to be a consistent discrepancy. So when we're looking at, at questions like do lesions progress and are they likely to progress and what are the predictors of these, the results that we've got show that this is very likely to be able to, to give us the answers that we want on an accurate level. So for me as a clinician, I think this is a very exciting piece of work and that it opens up questions that we just simply haven't been able to answer previously. Thank you. That's a really good answer. Talking about some of the limitations, you've already mentioned some of them already, but the algorithm was shown to perform less well at quantifying perilesional edema, mixed-density lesions, and small hemorrhagic lesions. Can you comment on why this might be? So due to the poor contrast in CT for edema, even trained radiologists can struggle with segmenting uh, perilesional edema and by extent mixed-density lesions. And in addition to this poor contrast that causes the CNN to make mistakes as the radiologist, because the CNN, the convolutional network, is trained on expert annotations, it will attempt to mimic the expert. And so if the expert is uncertain, the algorithm will also be uncertain. And so that combined with a poor contrast leads to worse performance on uh, perilesional edema. As for small hemorrhagic lesions, the lack of performance can be explained more by the metric itself than by the lesion. And finally, you have made the algorithm freely available to facilitate future research. So do you have a call for collaborators and what is the priority for the future of your research? We have a lot of unanswered questions and limited resources to answer them. So part of why we make the tool available is that any researcher can take their data set and automatically annotate them and try to answer these questions themselves. Um, and just to add to that, annotations themselves, we haven't made freely available as such, but that's just due to the ethical constraints that we're under with giving patient data. But if there was anyone who wanted to have access to that data, if we could set up data sharing agreements, we'd be very, very happy to allow this data set to be utilised. Fantastic. That's lovely. Thank you so much both for your time. Um, and please do read the paper by Virginia Newcomb, Miguel Montero and colleagues on our website called Multiclass Semantic Segmentation and Quantification of Traumatic Brain Injury Lesions on Head CT Using Deep Learning, an Algorithm Development and Multicenter Validation Study and the link comment contextualizing the study written by Massimo Filippi and colleagues at San Rafael Scientific Institute, Milan. Thank you very much for listening.